0: Well, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Jesus when he was at, at, at Nazareth, his hometown, and how he got rejected. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we gave a, a, a whole morning devoted on uh, understanding rejection and how to deal with that. That very week, I got an email. I want to read it to you. Uh, this, was, uh, this was last Friday. And it says, uh, Dear Pastor Francis, hi, you don't know me, but I remember you. My name's Christine. I'm 24 years old. In December of 1995, you spoke at a retreat up at Hume Lake. I had just broken up with my boyfriend at the time, a very horrible breakup. I was devastated and didn't eat for a week. My friend invited me to come to Hume Lake to get my mind off of it. I came expecting to do some snowboarding, some broom hockey, which was fun. But I wasn't expecting what I got from you. I remember every single message that you gave. Your mother dying your wife, how great your wedding night was. I don't remember talking about that, but how, uh, how you never thought you would get over a breakup that was so devastating. Um, and if you don't accept Jesus into your heart, the kingdom of heaven is not yours. I was shocked. You asked if anyone had not accepted God into their heart, they could come forward and be prayed with or just pray a prayer to accept Jesus. I looked at you angrily and then ran straight out of the auditorium. I was mad at you. I was so confused and incredibly uncomfortable. I considered myself a Christian, grew up as a Methodist, but no one ever addressed these things. In other words, if everything you said was true, then I had been wrong all my life and I was not a Christian, I could feel it. I knew that God was reaching out to me, but I didn't want to accept him unless it was on my terms. How could he not accept all religions, and how could he be so close-minded? Over the next few years, I began reading to prove you wrong. I was a straight-A student, and I thought I could do it. Leaving much detail out, God began talking to me through everything, through my friends, my teachers, the Bible, through situations you would think unbelievable. I kept shrugging it all off as a coincidence, and then one morning said out loud, God, if you want me so bad, you're going to have to put it in writing or say it out loud. I'm asking you a question, so answer me. The next day, my friend invited me to church. As I walked into the church, there on the front page of the program was Jeremiah 3.33. Call upon me and I will answer you. I began to shake and I could not keep my composure. I actually felt God all around me and started to cry. I couldn't believe that God loved me. Then I understood. God loved me so much, He gave up His Son for me to save me. He wants me so much, He let His own Son take the blame for my sins. God sent Jesus to take my sin away, so nothing stood between me and God. When I look back, I'm astonished how God planned each chain of event, each meeting, each person to touch my walk. I did not get saved the day I met you, but meeting you saved me. I thank God that you made me uncomfortable. So on this Easter weekend especially, I thought it was important to thank you for giving me new life four years ago. May God bless you richly on this Resurrection Sunday. In Jesus, Christine pretty awesome but it was a reminder to me of a couple of things first and foremost that it's all about God okay it's it's not about us and what we say and uh, the second thing is you know even when people reject our message there is a certain power about the gospel that doesn't leave us alone um I mean, I remember camps like that. I remember one camp, very similar to that one, where a guy, after I preached the gospel, not only did he he leave the auditorium, but afterwards sought me out and said to me, I would love to stick a gun to your head and blow your brains out right now. It's a high school student. Why do people get so angry about this message that God would send his son down here to die for us? It's like, you know, because they they feel like, well, why would he send his son and only his son? Why didn't he provide other ways? It's like a person drowning in the ocean and someone tosses him a life preserver and he says, how rude. I should have six of them and I should be able to choose which one I take. You guys, it's it's the same idea God who says, I love this world so much. I, I will demonstrate my love. I will send my son to die for this world, to die for their sins so they can be forgiven And yet the world can become so hostile toward that message. But what I'm reminded, and God keeps telling me, is, you know, even if they reject it immediately, you don't give up. You keep praying. You believe in the power of God to transform lives. There there are probably some of you in this room that probably have a story very similar to Christine's, who at some point you heard the message of Jesus Christ and you, you turned the person off. You may have rejected them. You may have even broken up relationships with other people because they began to talk to you about Jesus and that was offensive to you at one point in your life but then God began to work in your heart. And here you are today, absolutely transformed by what God did in your life even though you spent so long rejecting it. Because God can do anything He wants in any individual that He wants. God is all-powerful. We're going to talk about the power of God this morning as we, we see Jesus performing miracles we see him having power over any, any spiritual darkness. We, have him see, we, we see his power over any type of infirmity or physical disease. We see an all-powerful God. And sometimes, I think that we as Christians can begin to doubt God's power. Sometimes we get in this routine where we stop, we stop believing that God can do supernatural things in our lives. And we're just satisfied with the ordinary, the regular stuff that we see. And here's how it happens. A lot of times what happens to us is uh, we become a believer and we start praying and we actually expect God to do some supernatural things in our lives. And sometimes he does, but sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers the way we expect him to. And what happens when God doesn't do what we expect him to do, we start doubting him. And we start going, well, why do I even pray anyways? He didn't answer the last prayer the way I wanted him to. And I remember being in philosophy class in junior college and professors saying, hey, if if God is all-powerful, then why this, why this, why this? How come this happened in my life? How come this happened in my life if God is so powerful? And the answer to that, which I think I've said probably a hundred times in this church is, it's not all about you we've got to understand it is not all about us. The world does not revolve around us. It is not about this creator in heaven that is obligated to do everything that we think he ought to do. But if you read the Bible, you understand that from cover to cover, it is God's plan that he brings glory to himself. That there's a... There's something deeper than your own comfort and happiness, and that is the glory of God. That God created us for him, Colossians 1.16. You read all the way to the book of Revelation, you see at the end time when God does finally destroy Satan and torment him for all of eternity. It is all to the glory of God. And a lot of times, things in life don't happen the way we think they ought to do. And We've got to understand there is something bigger. There is someone bigger. There is a purpose greater than our own comfort. And that is to bring glory to the Creator. But sometimes we forget that. We were, a, my family and I were at dinner a few weeks ago. And uh, my oldest daughter did something that was very typical of her. Um, she gets her food. She takes a couple bites. And she goes, okay, I'm done. Let's go home. Now, we had just gotten our food, you know, we're just starting the meal, and my daughter's like, you know, looking at us like we're crazy for wanting to stay. She goes, I'm done eating, let's go home. And so I look at her and go, oh yeah, you know, let's just pack up our dinners, in fact, why don't I announce it to the whole restaurant, maybe we should all leave, because you're done. You know, <laughs> I believe in parenting through sarcasm, and, uh, <laughs> no, but, but I did, I, I, I sat her down, I go, baby, don't you understand that it's not all about you? just because you're done, look, did, did it even enter your mind that mom and dad and your little sister are still eating and maybe you should wait for us and then we all go home together? And she's, oh yeah, huh. You know, but this whole concept of there are other people in the world. And it's the same concept. That, that's what we do to God, our Heavenly Father. We say, well God, I'm ready for this, so make it happen. And we don't see there's a bigger picture out there. It's not all about what you think should immediately take place right now, but there's a God who is seeking to glorify Himself through His creation and through time, and He may do things differently than what you expect and what you want for your own cover uh, comfort and pleasure. I, I say that because, um, you guys, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, miracles today. And sometimes we can... Forget the purpose of miracles. Sometimes we lose the the point of the miracles. Okay, Jesus did not come on the earth just to heal everyone, just for the sake of healing them. The point, as we'll see, of his miracles was to authenticate his message. So that people would listen to what he would say. I mean, think about it. You've got a man who stands in front of a group of people and he's trying to convey to them that he is the Son of God. The one and only Son of God. How in the world do you convince people that you are the one and only Son of God walking on the earth, you became flesh? Think about that. In your mindset, if you had never even considered that as a thought, God to become man... How in the world could a human being stand before you and convince you that he really is the Son of God? The answer? Miracles. You start healing people who are blind from birth, and people, you get their attention. They realize you're not a normal person. You start casting demons out of people. You start healing people of various illnesses, and you realize this person has some power. And then as Jesus begins to speak, they have no excuse for not believing in him. See, the miracles were to validate his message. And sometimes we forget that, and we have this this unrealistic view of miracles and forget what they were all about. It's all to bring glory to God, and really that's what our lives should be about. And the truth is, is if we really seek to bring glory to God, it always works out the best for us, doesn't it? I, I mean, think about it. Think about Easter service last Sunday. Remember Easter service? What was our goal last Sunday? It was to somehow have God be honored, for him to, to look down and see the worship in that place and be honored. But what was the result of that as we sought to honor God? God was honored, but we leave there on a high. Now, you remember how when you left that, that room, it was just like, gosh, that was incredible, i got to say, that was one of the, the few times, you know, when I, I looked around, I just saw thousands of people, you know, whether they had their hands in the airs, but it just, just their eyes and just the look of this sincere, we just came here to worship our God. And there was just something so awesome about that. It, it made you long for heaven because you realize this is the way it's going to be. It's these people with the same heart, the same mind, just all singing out to God and you leave there just so filled when you seek to honor God. Because that's what happens when we seek to honor our Heavenly Father. We'll get the blessings for it. I mean, you can imagine, if your kids sought to honor you, wouldn't it work out to their benefit? I mean, not that it'll ever happen, but if they did, you know, if they just thought, you know, I just want to look out for you, Daddy. I want to look for you, Mom. You just want to bless them. In the same way, we have got to become men and women who seek God's glory above all things and say, God, if you heal me, I'll use it to your glory. If you keep me sick, I'll use that sickness to your glory. I'll do whatever to your glory. But it's all about lifting him up. So we pick up this story in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Remember, he has just come out of Nazareth. Remember, Nazareth is where he, he spoke in the synagogues and people got so furious with him, he took him to the, the brow of that hill and they're ready to push him off of this cliff Jesus walks right through, and then in verse 31, it says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Okay, so Jesus goes around, he starts teaching people, and it says the people were amazed at his his message, but it doesn't say it's because he was so eloquent, or it wasn't because he packaged everything so well, or he was so clever, it said his message had authority. When he spoke, there was a power about it. And that's the Holy Spirit speaking through those words, empowering him. And I hope that you seek to communicate that way. That as you speak to your friends about God and your relationship with him, that you're not all wrapped up in, ooh, how do I present this? I want to say it just right. I want to get all my words just perfectly. It's not about that. It's about power. It's about begging God and spending that time preparing through prayer and saying, God, when I speak, touch this person. Because only you can do that. I pray that each week before I speak here. It's not God, oh, make me funny today. You know, or, or or make this come across this way, this way. But God, power. When people hear your words, when they hear the word of God, Lord, may it impact their lives to where it convicts them all week long and doesn't let them rest. That's the way Jesus was speaking here. When he spoke, the people were amazed because it had such, the word is influence or power, authority over them. Verse 33, it says, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Okay, so here's a picture. Jesus is standing in a synagogue, and they bring in this man who is possessed by a demon. Okay, now that may be a total foreign concept to, to you. The idea of a, a demon is a, uh, is a spiritual being. A demon is a fallen angel demon is a follower of Satan. And when it talks about demon possession, a demon can actually enter into a human body and possess it. And when a demon enters into a human body, some different things happen. Sometimes there's physical infirmities. Sometimes there is an apparent madness, a craziness about the person. Oftentimes, a demon would enter into a person's body and then begin speaking through that human vehicle and begin saying things and possessing that body and using it to speak and give a message that the demon wants to give. Now, before you get all freaked out about it, let me, let me, let me tell you a couple things. First of all, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in him and genuinely believe in him, you cannot be possessed by a demon. The reason for that is you are already possessed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you become a temple of the Holy Spirit We, in a sense, house. Right now, God's Spirit lives in me. So it would be impossible for a demon to try to jump in there because he would have to overpower God. Okay, so I being already possessed by the Holy Spirit and having him dwell in me, no demon can possess me. And and really, the way I understand what the demons can do to us, they can only do as much as we allow them to do. Very similar to the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Um, The Holy Spirit's only going to do what you allow Him to do. While the Holy Spirit wants to sanctify you and purify you, you can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can put an end to these things. So here this man is possessed by a demon. A demon is actually in him, and and we see he'll actually speak through him. And people ask, well, how come in Jesus' day there was so much demonic activity? Well, I believe because there was so much God activity. Um, And the demons were combating that and trying to get the attention of the people but, but not only that, some people say, well, well, even now, you know, I talk to missionaries, I talk to people from other countries, and they see a lot of this stuff. I don't know how much you're familiar with it. I don't know, I'm sure in a, in a group this size, some of you have dealt with some, uh, dabbled in the occult. Some of you have seen maybe some demonic activity. I talked to a couple last night after the message and said, yeah, in reality, that's what turned us around, was we began to see some of the powers on the other side, and we realized it was genuine. But we don't see a lot of that in our country. If you remember a few years ago, that, that got a little popular where people said demons were speaking through them. Remember that? And they'd go on talk shows and, and people would come to these people and they would just be standing talking and then they go... <laughs> Hi, my name is Jimmy. I lived 4,000 years ago. You know, and, and they're saying, oh, look, the demon's speaking through me. What does he have to say? Ah, you know, and, he, and they just do these voices and you're just like, ah, I don't know if I buy it. you know, And, and you just you question some of stuff. And so, you know, how come we don't see a lot of the real stuff? Even though some of us may have And I believe the reason is this. In other countries, um, the demonic activity is huge. You know, you you see possession. You see people doing things. You see this this black magic type of stuff. um, And the people are actually worshipping those powers. And that's what Satan wants. When you read scripture, you see Satan's desire. read, Read Romans 1. Satan's desire... Is that God's creation would ignore him. Okay? That's what God wants. I mean, not what God wants, sorry. That's what Satan wants. See, he's talking to me. He's trying to. Okay. <laughs> Satan would love for us in this room to, igno- to ignore our Creator. Okay? You and I know we are created beings. We know that there's a Creator up above. And Satan wants us to deny Him and just worship the creation rather than the Creator. Think about ourselves rather than thinking about God. And so in other countries, we have people who actually worship these demonic beings. And as they do that, they're ignoring God. But here in our country, people already ignore God for what is natural. People are already neglecting God. I mean, how do people think about spiritual things? We're busy with our jobs. We're busy, you know, buying homes, buying cars, getting stuff, saving for retirement, doing this or that. We're not thinking about spiritual things here in America. We're thinking about ourselves already. I mean, really, what would happen if we began to see demon-possessed people here in America? Let's say every mile or so, you run into a demon-possessed person. What would that do to the average person? It would make them start thinking about spiritual things. It would freak them out, and, they, and maybe for the first time in their life, they'll realize there's more to life than my car. You know? You know? there is something beyond what is natural. But the truth is, is here in America, Satan really shoots himself in the foot when he does anything because it really alerts us to spiritual things. Like some of you, maybe you were on the other side. You saw a power that was real and that's what woke you up and made you realize, I better get my life together. There is more to this world than what I see. So here's a tangent. Um, But anyways, here here this demon-possessed man comes into the synagogue, and uh, and he begins to speak. He begins to speak to Jesus, and he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, have you come to destroy us? So you learn right there that the demon, speaking to Jesus, realizes Jesus can destroy us, and he's going to destroy us one time. Don't think there's this battle of, ooh, I wonder who's going to win, Jesus or these demons. The demons themselves say, you come to destroy us? Then he says, "I, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon recognizes who Jesus is. You're the Son of God. You're the Holy One of God. He knows who Jesus is. He fears his power. That's why in James 2, it says, if you, if all you do is say, in my mind, I believe there's a God, and I fear that God, he goes, great. The demons in hell believe that there's a God, and they shudder explain that it's not enough for you today just to say, well, in my head, I believe that there's a God, so that's good enough. Because even the demons in hell believe that there's a God. They even fear and recognize the power of that God. The difference between them and us who believe, who truly believe, is that we follow Jesus. We not only recognize His power, But we decide to come under that power and confess Him as our Lord. And that's what they refuse to do. They refuse to follow the Creator. And hopefully you've gone beyond where the demons are. And you don't sit here saying, well, I have intellectual belief in a God and that's good enough. Because that just puts you on par with the demons. At some point, you've got to decide, I want to follow God. I want to repent of my sin and I want to follow Him. I want to live the way He wants me to live. And at some point, you've got to make that decision. That's more than just intellectual acknowledgement that a God exists and fearing him. It's giving your life to him. It's accepting him as your Savior and as your Lord. So here they say, uh, you know, we know who you are. And Jesus says, be quiet. He tells the demons to shut up. He doesn't want them advertising who he is at this point. And then he says to the demon, come out of him. The man falls to the ground. The demon leaves without hurting him. And all the people are amazed, saying, what is it with this man? See, here he's beginning to validate his message. They're saying, wow, what is this? I mean, we heard his teaching, and it was powerful. But now he's speaking to evil spirits and casting them out of people. Who would have power over evil spirits? See, Jesus is gaining some credibility here. And then I love this next story, verse 38. It says, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. Okay, here's the story. Okay, Jesus leaves the synagogue. Okay, he's been doing all that stuff and he goes over to the house of Simon. This is Simon Peter. Okay, this is Peter of the apostles. And interesting because he goes to his mother-in-law. Peter was married. Okay, That's, that's a pretty important fact to remember, Peter, that some would say is the first pope, um, was married, okay, so here he's married, and he's he's at his mother-in-law's house, his mother-in-law is lying sick with this major fever, and what what happens is that they begin to ask Jesus, can you help her, I'm imagining Peter saying, Jesus, can you help my mother-in-law, she's sick, she's got a fever, And it says that what Jesus does is he bends over this woman and he rebukes the fever. He tells the fever to leave and the fever leaves. And it says, then she got up at once and began to wait on them. Picture that. Picture that for a second. Here's a woman bedridden with this fever. Jesus comes, rebukes the fever. She sits up and says, can I get you a drink? You know, and goes and says, can I get you something? It says immediately she goes and she waits on them. I love that. I love the moment she's healed, she goes out and she serves God. I love it because so many people, the only time they ever come to God is when they are in need. And they go, oh God, help me with this problem. And then once you get through it, you neglect them again till the next tragedy in your life. But though the reason why Simon's mother-in-law wanted to be healed was so that she could serve God. She wanted to be healed so that she could serve him. I mean, and you guys, the truth is, 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 why else would we want to be healed? For what other reason would we want to be healed than to serve God? I mean, for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, is it really the greatest thing? For us to be healed or wouldn't it be greater if we weren't healed and we got to go to heaven and be with God forever? Our desire for healing should be because we want to serve God more while we're here on this earth. One of my old professors from seminary, Dr. McDougall, uh, a guy was telling me in class the other day. um, Dr. McDougall was talking about this issue, an older man, and he uh, he said to his students, if you guys ever see me in the hospital. Let's say I'm dying of something and I'm in the hospital and, and you care enough to come visit me. He says, don't you dare pray that I be healed. He goes, I want to go home. because I so desperately just want to go home. He goes, don't come in there thinking you're doing me a favor by praying me back to health. He goes, I recognize I have work to do here on this earth, and I'll be on this earth as long as God wants me, but oh, I so badly want to be with God. I so badly just want to see Him. And I thought, man, how many believers have that attitude? I love God so much, I just can't wait to see Him. We call it a tragedy when a believer dies. A tragedy? That they get to go and be with the one that they love. See, we, we lose that concept because I, I wonder how strong our love for God is. Let, let's say my wife were in New York right now. And uh, she says, calls me and says, hey, you, you want to come see me? I go, eh, it's kind of fine just talking on the phone. Let's just do this for the rest of our lives. No, the very fact that I love her tell, you know, is, is because I, I want to see her so badly. Whenever we're we're apart, it's like I can't wait to see her face. I'd want to fly out there, drive out there. I, I, just, got, I just got to see her. In the same way, if we have that passion for God, then it's not enough for us to just go, eh, God, it's fine just talking to you through prayer. I'll just do this forever. Now, those of us who are in love with him say, God, I cannot wait for that day when I see you. We sing songs like, I want to see you. I want to see your face. I want to hear your voice. I want to touch you. Why? Because we recognize there is no relationship like our relationship with God. And we long for that. These spiritual things, these things that are beyond this earth. And hopefully that's your desire. Sorry, it's another tangent. But uh, here we I feel like Bookman up here. Verse 40 (laughs) says, uh, When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Okay, that's all to say that that those were not isolated incidents here in this town. It wasn't that Jesus healed just Simon's mother-in-law and he just cast a demon out of that one person, which would have been enough. But what happened is everyone started bringing their sick to Jesus and he heals them all. Everyone's there, he just starts healing them. He starts casting demons out. The same thing happens over and over and over again. You can imagine all these people rushing Jesus with their sick, loved ones that are maybe demon-possessed or, or have some sort of illness, and Jesus is healing everybody. And then it says in verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Okay, so so all these people are are coming to Jesus for healing, but then it says at daybreak, Jesus leaves, okay? So the sun's coming up the next day, and Jesus heads off to a solitary place, a place where no one can find him. He wants to be alone. You'll, You'll see that phrase over and over throughout Christ's life. That was his regular pattern, to get away from the rest of the people and just be alone with his heavenly father. And I'm not going to get too deeply into it right now, but I, I just got to ask you, are you still doing that? Do You still, va- still carve out that time in your day where you get away from all this stuff and all these other people, and it's just you and your heavenly father, and you just spend time with him. You still making that a priority in your life? You remember six months ago when we, we spoke about this and, and I brought in $1,440 and I said, What if I gave you this every single day of your life and all I asked was for you to give me $20 back out of that $1,440? Of course you would do it. And reminded you that every day God gives you 1,440 minutes. Every single day of your life, you would not live, you would not breathe one of those minutes if God did not give it to you. We sing that song, every breath I take, I breathe in you. I wouldn't be standing here alive before you if God did not permit that. 1,440 minutes of every day. And don't you think we could at least carve out 20 minutes and give it back to him? To start off in the beginning of the day... Because when we put it off, what happens? Everything else crowds it out, doesn't it? It's like, ah, oh, I missed another day. Don't you long to be alone with God in that love relationship? Coming before God in the beginning of the day and saying, here I am. What do you want me to do for you today? How can I bring glory to your name? I hope you're still doing that and that the, the things of this earth haven't crowded you out. And you may think, well, I'm a pretty important person. I'm a pretty busy person. Jesus was pretty important, too. He had a lot of things going on himself, and yet his pattern was, I'm going to spend time alone with my father, because that's my most important relationship. So he goes in a solitary place, but as he's praying, it seems like the people find him there, okay? So they're searching him out, and they're ruining his time with God. You know, they they come, and and they swarm him, and and what they do is it, it says that they try to keep him from leaving them. See, Jesus was going to go and and preach the good news to other places, but these people were trying to keep Jesus in their town. Question, why did they want to keep Jesus? Yeah, because he was healing them. I mean, wouldn't you want Jesus around? I mean, if we had a guy like that in Simi Valley, you know, that could just heal anyone, do anything that he wanted, and everyone that brought their sick to him, he would just heal them. Wouldn't you want to keep that guy in our city? So let's just keep it a secret. Let's leave him here in Capernaum. And Jesus says, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to preach the good news. That's why I was sent. I got to go. It's not all just about performing these miracles. The point of the miracles is so that I can go out and preach the good news. But the interesting thing is the people did not want Jesus to leave. Not because of his teaching. It's not because they're thinking, I really want to follow this guy. They're thinking, we could really use this guy. And as you read in the Scriptures, you'll see there are crowds that apparently follow Jesus, but they're not really following Him. They're using Him. They want His miracle-working power. They want Him to heal them. They they want Him to feed them. Sad thing is 2,000 years later, times haven't really changed, have they? People just want God to do something for them, and then once He doesn't do it, They go, I'm not following him anymore. He didn't do what I asked. How come this happened? How come that happened? We don't sincerely want to follow him. We just want to use him. But those of us who really love him, yeah, we we love those blessings and everything else, but the truth is, is we will seek to glorify him regardless what happens in our lives. That's a sign of a real believer, a true follower. They seek the glory of God. See, we we can get so messed up by these TV preachers who say, you know what? God wants you to be healed every single time. If you've got sickness, it's sin in your life. And that's the only reason why you're sick. Because God wants everyone healthy. If that's true, then how come some of the, the people we read about in Scripture, people like the Apostle Paul, are afflicted? People like Timothy, who gets sick. And Paul says, take some wine for your stomach. How come there's people like Trophimus, who, who, who Paul says, I had to leave him sick there in Miletus. Remember when Paul was in prison, okay? God doesn't always rescue people from things that are difficult. Remember Paul is in prison in Philippi? Now, could God have freed Paul from his chains? did not God have the power to do that? He did it to Peter. Why didn't he do it to Paul? doesn't seem fair. And yet, what was Paul's response to that? Paul in Philippians chapter 1 When he talks about being chained up, he doesn't sit there and whine about how God hasn't freed him from these chains. What he says in Philippians 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ because of my chains. Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Paul says, you know what? I'm realizing the whole point of me being shackled up here. Actually, it worked to God's advantage. It works to his glory. It works to spread the gospel because now I got to share with all the guards. And not only that, but the other believers see me in prison and it gives them courage. He's saying, I'm seeing how my difficulties are bringing glory to God. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about this... Uh, we're, not ex- we're not positive what it is. Some say this has to do with... We know that Paul had some sort of problem with his eyes, some sort of oozing eye disease, and this could be referring to that, or it could be referring to some sort of uh, infirmity that he's, he's struggling with here. But in 2 Corinthians 12, listen to what Paul says about this uh, this pain he feels. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited... Because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul says, I beg God. Okay, this is the Apostle Paul who begged God, take this messenger of Satan away from me, whatever it was, this illness, this pain, take it away from me. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, it ends up that it's made me weak and it's caused me to depend on God's power because when I'm weak, I'm strong. You see that about Paul's life? It's like whatever situation he was in, it was not about himself. It was like, how can I bring glory to God through this? Listen, I'm not a person that just longs for tragedy. Okay, I don't say, God, you know, I have something horrible happen this week to me, so I can bring glory to you. You know, of course, I would much rather be comfortable and safe. We all desire that type of pleasure. But at some point we can we, we need to be able to pray and say to God, God, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. God, if I can bring more glory to you through a trial, then God, so be it. Because my life is about bringing glory to you. If you can perform a miracle in my life, something supernatural, if you, you want to do that and heal me of something, and, uh, then I'll boast, I'll boast about that. But whatever happens, I'll bring glory to you. Is that your attitude? Is your life about God? Because if so, there will be times in your life When God does things that cannot be explained any other way. And I love that. Don't you love it when that happens? When you see something, you just know it's God, there's no other explanation for it.